Amen. Now, let's go into Scripture this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10 this morning. We're talking about lawsuits. You know, throughout this series, we, we've talked about ways in which we can study uh, or we can actually, uh, actually subtly be influenced and shaped and, and molded by the culture. Uh, the world around us can be so filled with, um, with certain philosophies that, 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 that run contrary to scriptures and, and, and certain ideas um, our culture can be filled with that run contrary to scripture. And those ideas, because they are filled or because our culture is filled with them, those ideas can actually end up capturing our hearts as well. And we can become captive to those ideas and captive to those philosophies without even realizing it. And one such way that this can happen is in the way we view lawsuits. And the reason I say that is because the us is all of, um, because the U.S. rather is all about some lawsuits. I wrote us instead of you dot period s dot, you know, so I ended up saying us. Anyway, the U.S. is all about some lawsuits. We love, love to sue. We are actually in the top five of the most litigious countries in the entire world. We love the suit, meaning we are in the top five of countries in the world that, have, uh, that are most unreasonably prone to settle our disputes in court. We have one lawyer for every 300 people in our country. That's the smallest ratio of lawyers to citizens in the world. Shout out to my brother, Matt Clark, resident lawyer in the house. We love you, brother. We love you, and we want you to keep doing a great job representing the 300 people that you represent in our, in our country. Now, this is not a knock on lawyers, right? It's, it's, it's rather an attempt to draw your attention to, to how so happy this culture is, this culture that we live in, and, and, and how that Sue Happy culture can influence us in ways that many of us don't realize. It can influence the way that we look at the courts as an early option to settle our disputes rather than an option of last resort. But not only do we rely on the courts to handle our disputes, we rely on them in the most trivial of matters. For example, in 2014, a California man sued McDonald's for $1.5 million, and his reason was he only received one napkin with his order. And the argument that followed after he received that one napkin left him emotionally distressed. And so he sued McDonald's for $1.5 million. There was a Chicago woman in 2016 that sued Starbucks for $5 million. And her reason was that Starbucks put too much ice in their cold drinks. It left the cold drink instead of a 24-ounce, it left it at about 14 ounces of fluid. Apparently, it never dawned on her to just... Ask for light ice. I do it all the time. There was, a, there was a, a, another person that, 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 that even in the church, when you, talk about, when you talk about these matters unfolding in our culture, they also unfold in our, in our churches as well because you're seeing now churches suing over church votes or preachers suing other preachers. Even a few years ago, I saw 
that a church had sued one of its former members because, get this, they left a bad review of the church on Google. Just so you know, if you leave one here at City Light, we're coming for you. We got a lawyer, remember. <laughs> we are a sue-happy culture. So Paul's words to us this morning are worthy of our consideration. Let's take a look at him in verse 1. He says this, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? When you take a quick look at the historical background of the legal system where this scene is playing out, you see that it was plagued, the, the, the system was plagued with a lot of problems. According to scholars and historians, the Roman legal system was often tilted towards the wealthy. Lower class folks, for example, were prohibited from per, uh, prosecuting those that were considered in the elite class. On the flip side, people from the elite class could absolutely bring cases, cases against those of the lower class. So that's one way in which it was tilted. The, ju the jurors were typically selected from wealthier social groups. For example, in North America, in order to be considered for jury duty, citizens had to have a property value of 7,500 denarii, roughly 20 years worth of labor for an average employee. In addition, in that culture, in that time, lawyers were just simply too expensive for the average Joe to secure one. Which leads us to think that most likely when we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 about this lawsuit, it is more than likely between two people of, of, of financial privilege within the Corinthian church. Because the other members either didn't have the authority to sue as one in the lower class or they didn't have the means to sue because there was so much involved financially in lawsuits. Now, another problem that plagued this system was corruption. Some historical documents, for example, show that juries were, were sometimes conspiring to see innocent people thrown in jail. Caesar Augustus, for example, saw the issues and released an edict that described what he saw. He said in that edict, there exist certain conspiracies to oppress the Greeks in trials on capital charges. Conspiracies to oppress. He continues and he said, I myself have ascertained that some innocent people have in this way been oppressed and carried off to the supreme penalty. People conspiring to see that innocent people go to jail for crimes that they did not commit. So much so that he had to release an edict to say, hey, we need to do something about this. This is the environment in which Paul is writing and speaking with the Corinthians concerning lawsuits. Now, this isn't everything that Paul has in mind here, but it certainly could be a little of what he has in mind when he says in verse 1, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Their systems are imbalanced. This legal system is imbalanced and, and even at times corrupt. But most importantly, this system has no insight into how the kingdom of God calls us to treat one another. And despite all of that, y'all are going to take your dispute with one another on a trivial matter to the world according to verse 
2. Trivial matter is important. We're going to keep, we're going to come back to that in just a little while. Paul, again, is, is just like we found him last week in chapter 5. He is upset and he is beside himself. And I sense there are definitely a few reasons why. Paul is asking, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints for a few reasons? Reason number one, the lawsuit shows an absence of the church's authority. The lawsuit shows an absence of the church's authority. Notice that this passage that we're reading this morning comes right after an entire section on church discipline in chapter 5. Remember last week, Paul confronted the church on their unwillingness to address the grievous sin in their own camp. And in his confrontation was a section in which Paul says these words. Verse 12 of chapter 5, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? So here is Paul basically saying you needed to judge the one sleeping with his father's wife, as we discussed last week, and yet you withheld that judgment. Now you have another situation that needs the church's judgment. And instead of dealing with that situation, you're withholding, again, your judgment. And you're letting the world with their unspiritual and at times imbalanced and corrupt system handle this matter for you. Paul is saying, for saints, this should not be matters that you should be handling and judging on the inside. You should be actually judging. You're either taking them to the, to the outside or ignoring them completely when you should be the one that's judging those matters. Now, we're not sure what all is happening here, but it appears that maybe due to the idolatry of leadership that's ha- that we see in Corinth that we've talked about or the chasing of the great orators of the day as we've talked about, or the widespread sexual sin even that seems to be at work, the Corinthian church has lost its ability to speak with authority to its members. And so it's deferring, or it's not doing it at all. A church without authority in the life of its members can only be a worldly church. If the members are taking their cues from what the world thinks of them versus what the brothers and sisters in the house of God think of them and what God thinks of them and how his word evaluates them, then they will be mainly shaped and molded by the world that they so highly regard. But the church should have a role of authority in our lives. You should treasure and sit under the authority of the Word of God. You should value and consider the leadership of those shepherding you when, you, when, they, when they do so as unto and with the Lord. You should embrace the whole counsel of the church and its members when searching for wisdom in your decision-making. You should be asking folks around you in your own church What do you think when the Lord is calling you to make tough decisions? The church is not intended to just be a place for social belonging. It's a place where you are nourished and shaped to become more and more like Jesus. And we have to treat it as such. We have to actually take the counsel that comes out of your churches. You have to take it to heart. 
Don't just hear the Word of God and not approvingly of the Word of God, but actually ask yourself, how do I take my life and align it with the Word of God that I'm hearing routinely? Women, ask yourself, how much authority do the sisters around me in my church have in my life? If I go left, can they pull me back? And if not, why? And how do I address that? Men, ask yourself the same question. If the brothers in this church don't have enough authority in my life to call me out on my waywardness and put me back on track, why not? And how do I address that? The fact that these men are taking their trivial matters outside of the church suggests that the church doesn't have a large enough role in the shaping and molding of their lives. Do you understand that? Here's another reason Paul is asking, how dare you go to unbelievers? Reason number two, the lawsuit shows an absence of an eternal vision. An absence of an eternal vision. Verse 2, it says, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? Paul comes out in verses 2 and 3 swinging for the fences as he continues to address the, the why for his words in verse 1. Does he dare take the trivial matters to the outsiders rather than handling these matters internally in the life of the church? That's the question Paul keeps coming back to. In verse 2, to, two and 3, Paul is, is making so he's making these unbelievable statements, statements that have cosmic and eternal implications for us if we actually take them to be true, which we should. The first statement, the children of God, the people of God will judge the world. The second statement, the children of God, the people of God will judge angels. Just stop for a moment, saints. Take that in. Take those two realities in, that you and I will join our God in the judging of angels, in the judging of this world. Fallible and sinful men and women like you and I will be transformed into the image of Christ in such a way and conformed into the likeness of Christ so much so that one day we will take part in the judgment of the world and in the judgment of angels. This is the truth that's hinted at in, in, in the Old Testament. In Daniel, for example, chapter 7, verse 22, it says, Until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Jesus himself hints at this judgment. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, and you, talking to his talking to his disciples, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Saints, we will judge the world and we will judge the most powerful created beings in the entire known universe. Now, we don't know how that will look, and we don't know the full 
cosmic and eternal assignment in all of its details, but I don't believe that is the point that Paul is trying to make. Paul is trying to turn our attention and our gaze, the church's attention and gaze, from the natural and temporary to the supernatural and eternal. Paul is saying here in verse 2 and 3 that if God is preparing you and God is preparing me for such a monumental and enormous task as judging the world and judging angels, is it too much to ask to have you judge these more trivial matters here on earth? Is it too much to ask for the church to serve as fair arbitrators in petty cases? Is it too much to ask for the church to judge whether one of our church members should be owed money for rent or should be paid for work done for another church member? Is that too much to ask, Paul is saying, if in fact you've been called to judge the world and judge angels? I would venture to say that what keeps us not only unable to resolve trivial matters between Christian family, but actually keeps us involved in trivial disputes between Christian family in the first place is that we do not take in the cosmic and eternal implications of what God is doing in us as we should. We don't understand and we don't quantify how big the cosmic reality, how big the eternal reality is of what God is doing in us and through us. And because of that, we get caught up in the petty. We get caught up in the trivial. You and I, saints of God, are being prepared for eternity here. God is preparing you for eternity here. The way in which we engage with one another and love one another is preparation. The way in which we learn to forgive one another and look past one another's faults is preparation. The way in which we resolve our disputes with gospel ethics is preparation. The way in which we handle our disagreements in the way of Jesus and not in our own flesh is preparation for our judging of the world and our judging of angels in the eternal kingdom. On the flip side, we have verse 4, though. Verse 4, Paul says, so if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? Those on the outside aren't being renewed spiritually. They aren't being prepared for eternity. They aren't being challenged and taught to embrace the way of Jesus. So why would they be called on to settle your trivial matters? When we, are, when we are going this route to settle disputes, it probably speaks more to where we are than where the outsiders are. You see, it means that we've lost sight of eternity. And when you view life the same way the world views it, then we should not be surprised when we are more inclined to resolve our troubles and our issues in life the same way the world solves them. You see, saints of God, how we view the future impacts how we live in the present. 
when we don't understand the cosmic and we don't see the cosmic, when we don't understand the eternal and live in light of the eternal, then we resolve our matters like those who are thinking only about the temporary. Now, before I move on to my next reason, let me, let me offer one caveat. Pay attention to Paul's words, last words in verse 2. He says, are you incompetent to, trivial, to try trivial cases? Now, I believe the distinction between trivial or as he says in the next verse, uh, the, the, the next verse matters pertaining to this life. I believe the distinction and the difference between trivial matters pertaining to this life and non-trivial matters is important. And I believe it's somewhat layered. First, I believe Paul is, in a sense, pointing to this idea that all matters in this life are trivial when compared to the judging of angels and the world and eternity. So how can you be prepared for the heavier judgments to come when you want, when, when, when you want to judge, when you won't judge rightly the lighter matters now? I believe that's part of what Paul is saying. But I, but I believe Paul, if we want to take him in a more natural, uh, more natural way of seeing what he's saying, I believe that Paul is actually talking about literal, trivial cases, not major crimes, not capital offenses. And one reason I believe that to be the case is because of what Paul says in Romans 13. In Romans 13, when Paul talks about government, the authority of government in the life of the church. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who, who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval." For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He does not bear the sword in vain. Paul's point is that we shouldn't resist when government is pursuing justice and serving its people through the upholdings, uh, upholding of laws that punish evil and allow for its citizens to flourish. And so, in other words, what I'm saying here is, is that Paul is not trying to create a new system of govern governance within the church that ignores the governance outside of the church. Does that make sense? And, why, and, so, and, so, and so, when you look at chapter 6, Understand that there have been some people that have used this in unnatural ways. Here's what I mean. They've used it in ways that have left victimized people further damaged and further victimized. I've seen, I've seen folks use these verses for why we shouldn't take cases of physical domestic abuse to the courts. Say, hey, we're supposed to keep this in the church and resolve these matters in the church. I've seen people use these verses for uh, for evidence as why we shouldn't take cases of sexual abuse to the courts, saying these are trivial matters in light of eternity, and the church should be able to handle them. Let me say unequivocally, I do not believe that Paul has that in mind at all. And let me say unequivocally that neither does City Life. So with, with that in mind, 
if we come across matters here in our church of domestic abuse or matters of sexual abuse that have any ounce of credibility, we will report those matters to the authorities, and we will let the authorities handle those matters. Do you understand? We will not say, well, let's, let's, you know, let's take this in and, you know, handle it as a church because this is trivial matters in light of eternity. No, we're going, we're going to the authorities because we believe that's why they're there. And we don't believe that we have the expertise, nor the insight, nor the know-how to handle those matters rightly. Does that, does that make sense, church? We will not allow the word of God to be leveraged as a weapon to further uh, victimize those who have already been victimized. We will defend those who have been exploited. We will defend those who have been abused. We will defend those as if we would defend our own blood daughters and sons and our own blood brothers and sisters. Does that make sense, saints? Now, with that said, let's turn to the third and final reason for this morning for why Paul asks, how dare you go to unbelievers? Reason number three, the lawsuit shows an absence of gospel grace. The lawsuit shows an absence of gospel grace. Verse 7 of chapter 6, he says, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. One translation renders this, why not rather be cheated? Why not rather be cheated? Some of you heard those words just now. And you said to yourself, no, sir, not me. And the words of Ross and Wheezy for the young folks. No, sir, not me. Don't, don't count me in that. I'm not, I am not one of those folks that's interested in being cheated. Some of you heard those words and said to yourself, Paul thinks I'm a sucker, doesn't he? But I'm not. And Paul's response to that would be, by trying not to be, quote unquote, a sucker in that moment, you're causing all of us to be losers in that moment. To have lawsuits at all, Paul says, with one another is already a defeat for you. When Christians can't suffer being cheated, they've lost the battle. When they, when they have to win every petty dispute in order to be satisfied, then they've lost the battle. When that happens, they've adopted the way of their surrounding culture over the way of Jesus. And they've lost their distinction in a world that desperately needs to see that distinction. You know, I said at the beginning of this message that the world around us can be so filled with certain philosophies and ideals that run contrary to scriptures that we can become captive to those same philosophies and not even realize it. And that is certainly the case when it comes to how we show grace to one another and grace to the world around us. 
You know, we say because we are swimming in these cultural waters, we, we often say, I cannot let anyone get over on me like that because that is a sign of weakness. But God says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, and I will repay. Now, let me just say that one of the ways in which God repays is through the exercise of discipline in his local church and through the exercise of the courts in terms of when matters have to be handled and, and, uh, and, 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 and criminal matters have to be handled. But nevertheless, it is God who is doing the work and not us. You know, we often say, I cannot let anyone get over on me because the world will look at me and think that I'm a, I'm, I'm a chump. And to that, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, love your neighbor. You, or rather, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. In other words, this is what makes you look like me. When you, take this, when you take the alternate route, you look just like everybody else in the world. When you take this route, you don't look like a chump. You look like me. You look like a son and a daughter of the Father in heaven. You may say, man, listen, I ain't going to let people just run over me. To that, Jesus says, I ask you to follow me. And they did more than run over me. They crucified me. And I ask you to follow me. You see, this is one of the areas where Christians have the opportunity to most reflect Jesus in their life and to the world in the way that we administer grace to those that may not demonstrate that they deserve that grace. You know why? You know why it makes us look like Jesus? Because that is exactly what Jesus did for you and for me. He administered grace to people who did not deserve grace. He suffered the wrong committed by you and committed by me, the wrong that earned us hell, the wrong that left us on the outside of the kingdom of God and facing eternity absent of God's presence. Look at it in verse 9 and 10. He says, or do you not know that the righteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor uh, revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God of God. It's as if Paul is saying, you're watching those on the outside and saying to yourselves, I want to imitate how they resolve their issues. I love how they don't let anybody take advantage of them. I love how they don't let people walk over them. If somebody cheats them, 
then they get every single penny back, and that's what I want to do. In fact, they have sex with whoever they want to, whenever they want to, however they want to, and they throw the wildest parties in the world, and they drink as much as they want, and they get rich, and they don't let anybody get in their way of that, and it seems like, the, it seems like their life is so much better and satisfying that way, and I want that. And Paul's response to that would be, but they're missing out on the kingdom of God. Not just the eternal kingdom of God, but the right now kingdom of God, the place where joy unspeakable exists, the place where peace that passes all understanding exists. So instead of pursuing a route that seems like it will lead to satisfaction, but ultimately will lead nowhere, check out where, check out where grace leads in verse 11. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And Paul is calling the Corinthians to embrace the reality of grace by which they've been saved, to, to embrace it so deeply that they are no longer bothered in the same way by the wrongdoing that's done against them. To embrace, to embrace grace so deeply that the disputes are minimized in your life. That the wrongs done to you, that they lose their sting because you see grace in the same, or you see your opportunity to administer grace as an opportunity to reflect your Savior back to the world. You remember that, listen, I was the one that deserved to be brought on trial. I was the one. I was the wrongdoer. I was the shyster. I was the one who cheated my God. He gave me everything. He gave me life. He gave me breath. He gave me everything that I ever needed. And I cheated him. I performed all sorts of acts against him. I mocked him. I made a mockery of his grace. And in response to that, he sent his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross on my behalf. In response to that, he loved me with a love unspeakable. How can I then return that with an absence of grace towards everyone else? That's what Paul is trying to get us to see here. Is the reality of Jesus' salvation of you by his dying on the cross for you, resting so prominently in you that wrongs against you no longer land on you the way that they once did? Is that true of you? Is his grace towards you so evident in you that the wrongs against you no longer land on you the way that they once did. Let 
Lastly, how do we repeat, or how do we not repeat the same mistakes? A few pointers in closing, just a couple of, couple of pointers here. Number one, rid yourself, rid ourselves of hyper-individualism. How, how do we avoid being the type of people and the type of church that takes matters that should be resolved inside, taking them outside? One way is to rid ourselves of hyper-individualism. You see, one of the reasons why the church has so little impact on our daily lives is because most of us have been swept up in the cultural waters of hyper-individualism. We do what we want, when we want, and how we want to do it. And if the church can get on board with that, cool. If it cannot, we'll just, we'll just go and look for another church. Here's one way that that plays out. We show up to the church one Sunday, and we read a text, pastor preaches on a text that none of us like. Hard left-leaning guy in the audience hears about the sanctity of life in the sermon and says, I don't really like that. The hard right-leaning guy in the audience hears in the same sermon the call to welcome the stranger and the immigrant and teach them with or treat them with kindness and generosity as image bearers of the, of the Most High God. And they say, well, I don't like that. And they both get mad and they both leave the church. Why? Did the preacher change the truth of God's word? No. Why did they leave then? Because that truth cut against their own personal doctrine. And in today's culture, our own personal doctrine is elevated above the doctrine of Jesus Christ. It ultimately doesn't matter what Jesus says. It matters what I think. And me and Jesus are totally good just as long as Jesus' values match my values. However, when his values stop matching my values, I'm not going to reevaluate my values. I'm going to go and find another church that will either better align with my values or worst case, just don't touch that part of my life at all. You see, because of hyper-individualism, this is how way too many of us operate in our daily lives. So many of us don't join a church looking to be transformed and sanctified. We join a church looking to be affirmed in our behaviors and in our ideas and in our already pre-existing values. And dare I say, we look to be coddled, so to speak. Here's what one pastor and writer has to say about this phenomenon. He says, the expressive individualist's way is for you to chart your own course. If the church gets behind your life choices, great. But if the church were to challenge your behavior or your attitude, you, certainly, you suddenly claim that your life story is no one else's business. He says that this type of living does not empty, or, or this type of individualism, rather, does not empty the church of its members. It merely fills the pews with people who see their church attendance as another expression of their own identities and aid in their own pursuit of happiness. Thus, the church has limited, if any, real authority in their lives. The church cannot correct you because your way is the right way. And if the church has no authority in your life, then it's only going to lead to worldliness because sanctification can't come where a church can't speak to you. Does that make sense? One pastor said this in the context of one's politics. He said, I've heard many congregants leaving their church because it didn't match their politics, but I've yet to hear of someone changing their politics because it didn't match their church's teaching. He goes on to say that we have failed to teach people that sometimes Scripture is most useful to us when it doesn't say what we want it to say, because then it is correcting us. 
Saints of God, if your church cannot correct you, then you have no hope in terms of settling disputes with one another, in terms of being transformed out of sin, you have no hope. We also have to see the church the way Jesus sees it, not a place for our Jesus fix on Sunday morning, but an assembly of people who collectively share the responsibility with the help of the Spirit of helping each other grow more and more in the image and likeness of Jesus. The church is a channel of grace for your transformation if you would embrace it as such and allow its authority to have authority in your life. Now, I get it. There's, it's okay to have healthy suspicion about churches. It's okay to have, have healthy suspicion about institutions. Men lead institutions, and men are fallible, thus the institutions are. But it's also healthy to have a healthy, uh, healthy suspicion about yourself. Meaning that when you come to a place and someone begins to chart a course that does not align with your values, don't simply question the person who's charting the course. Question whether or not you're on the right course. Go back to the scriptures. Read them again. Hey, we, we record all of our sermons. Go back and listen to them as much as you want to. Invite me to lunch. Say, hey, man, you were talking about this lawsuit thing, right? And I'm just trying to trying to figure out why, why can't I sue McDonald's, you know, for that, uh, for that napkin. Come on back. Talk to me about it. But question yourself just as much as you question the institutions. Does that make sense? If you're only creating yourself a habit of questioning the institution, then again, you set a climate where you never can be corrected. You are always right. And then lastly, extend the same grace that you've received. Extend the same grace that you've received. Extend the same grace that you've received. We are products of grace. I woke up so happy, man, that my wife had got this for me this week. I'm like, man, I'm putting this on. This fits my sermon. Wearing this, I'm a product of grace. We are products of grace, saints. We are products of grace. So we should be giving grace. Am I growing in grace? That's the question all the time. Am I seeing more and more people as candidates of grace? Because I'm seeing more and more people as recipients of God's grace. And if I am not, then I have to question, why am I not? Is the news creating more enemies in my heart than candidates of grace? Cut it off. Listen to me, cut it off. If it's causing you to see more people as enemy than it is candidates of grace, turn it off. Is, it, it, are my circle, is my circle of friends through their gossip and through their hypercriticism creating more enemies in my heart than candidates of grace? Call them out. Is my social media through algorithms of fear and of hype causing more enemies in my heart than candidates of grace? Turn it off. You need to be a recipient and a spout of grace. Not just receiving grace daily from God, but giving grace to others, whether they wrong you or not. And so God has called us to a higher way of thinking, and, and, call, or, or, and not just a higher way of thinking, but a higher way of doing, and in so calling us to that, 
the world sees the distinction. And they begin to ask, how on earth can a man forgive what he just forgave? How on earth can a sister suffer that kind of wrong? How on earth can they allow someone to cheat them so badly? And your response can be every single time, let me tell you about a man who did the exact same thing on my behalf. This is the call of the saints. Amen. Let's go before the Lord and pray. God, we love you and we thank you and we ask, Lord, that you would help us and aid us.